0: We back in the lab, we making some noise, so go turn your decibels up. Uh, black skin, white coat, oh no, who was nice as us? Major Mason really told us no limits, so we about to take this up. we from mixing in the kitchen to the lab, and now nah, nah, I can make this up. Be side be scientist, be side be scientist. We shining a light on the people of color to show them how fly it is. Be is. be scientist, be side be scientist. We back in the lab with white coats on our backs on the show with time It is welcome hey. everyone to Be Scientist, a podcast by the Black Science Coalition Institute, or BSI, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to increasing diversity and science from Black and underrepresented communities. I am one of your co-hosts, UGA grad student and geoarchaeologist, Jordan Chapman. And as always, we have our other co-host and UGA grad student,
1: Jana Carpenter.
0: And today's episode was recorded from a live stream from the Gender, the Body, and the Fieldwork field Symposium. And we just want to say to all those people who registered and organized the, uh, organized the event, thanks for having us and giving us this opportunity. And we were having some audio problems at the beginning of that live stream, so we just wanted to go back and make sure we properly introduced our guests. On that live stream, we had Edgar Alarkin, a doctoral candidate in anthropology here at UGA. His research focuses on archaeology, bioarchaeology of what today is Central Mexico. Egger's research uses methods like stable isotopes and geometric study of bones to understand how daily life changed for indigenous people after European contact and colonization. More specifically, he researches changes in health, diet, and farming methods. Egger also previously taught elementary science and social studies in public school and is broadly interested in science education for varied age groups and the general public. Egger plans to continue in archeological research and public engagement after graduation.
1: We also have Tia Manns, a first year graduate student from the Marine Sciences Department here at UGA. Tia works with Dr. Amanda Spivak looking at tidal migration, and she's interested in biogeochemistry in these coastal, e- coastal ecosystems. She has plans to pursue a doctorate in the future and become a field researcher.
2: Uh, so I, I can go first, if, if that's all right. Um, so I, I do archaeology and uh, bioarchaeology, uh, slightly different, you know, um, so I'm interested in studying like human behavior in the past, um, human communities in the past. And um, I grew up in California, and both of my parents are from Mexico. So I think uh, growing up, and they told me a lot about farm life or about life in Mexico, it just made me interested in learning about the ways people live in different countries or in different cultures and something like that. Um, and I think over time, I just kind of grew an interest. I grew an interest in uh, anthropology and more specifically in people past.
3: So for me, it's a little different. Um, most of my family actually has like a background in education, and I took my interest more on the scientific route, but I always knew I wanted to pursue higher education and Thanks to the people in my life that um, helped me nurture that that um, that interest of mine, I, de- I developed an interest in marine sciences and biogeochemistry, and here I am.
1: Well, that's awesome. Uh, and just for a little brief uh, introduction for ourselves, in case the audience uh, hasn't heard an episode of These Scientists before, uh, like Jordan mentioned earlier, I am in the chemistry department studying. Um, uh, bacterial resistance and metabolomics and proteomics in that field. So it's a little different, right, from uh, maybe the field work aspect with anthropology and marine sciences, um, but I think we can generate a pretty decent uh, conversation around what that means to us and especially how that reflects in our identity. Did you want to mention anything?
0: Oh uh, yeah, sure. Um- I a few archaeologists have done both archaeological excavations and geologic camps. Um, my first one was in Israel for archaeology. Um, and the next time I went on to the was for geology. And I was in Wyoming, know, Idaho, Utah, like in the Western area of the United States. And then last year, last summer, I was the TA for UGA's archaeology field tool um, on the Georgia Thompson.
1: And so that kind of leads us into our next question for the both of you. Uh, and then I guess we can have Tia start so that we can go uh, in order uh, and not have to talk over each other. Uh, but in your experience, can you describe moments where you were aware of the intersection of your identity? And being a researcher, how those moments have impacted you in your career?
3: So, Tia, if you want to answer for us. So, for me, um, I, like, actually came into a department that is predominantly um, white. And I, like, I didn't really, re- excuse me, I didn't really realize that until like was just at a party full of, like, the grad students, the faculty members, and um, my fellow, like, soon-to-be accepted students. And I, it was just, like, oh, wow, I'm literally the black sheep in the room. And me and the only other um, African-American in my field, we just saw each other from across the room. We're just like, oh my God, you look like me. You know, and I never really, in my life, I've never really had that experience where I didn't like realize I was so different from people. I was fortunate enough that I didn't have to feel the negative impact of my gender or my skin color. And when I, um, but now that I'm in that this department and I, and I'm slowly like kind of experiencing that. And it's not all negative. I'm not trying to say it's bad or anything. My department has been very, very welcoming. My advisor's been very welcoming in my um, cohorts as well. But it is, it is like a bit of a, like a gap there because I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a work, I work for my, for, like for my funding. I like actually work at, um, I used to work with Jana over at the Center for Applied Isotope Studies. And they currently fund me to, um, to go to school right now. And so I'm basically multitasking with research, school, and in um, my job. And a lot of the other students don't have that. They they have the kind of like since the luxury of just being fully funded by their advisors and be able to just go to a school and do their research. <clears throat> and like having to kind of since explain that, hey, I am different in just this aspect alone, it's quite difficult because a lot of them They they understand to a point, but they also don't get that I don't have the flexibility as they do, and I, like, I experience that on a daily basis because I'm at, like, in a, a little bit of a disadvantage because of my situation, and, like, I'm pretty much, like, trying to, like, work my way into understanding, like, what works for me and how can I be successful and, like, really not compare myself to everyone else who's come from a different background or a different education system because I came from a, not necessarily a low college, but it was, it's a really, a recently, recent college is only like about 10 years old now. And I'm hearing all these people who have come, who've already been in UGA or come from other bigger, well-known state schools, and they've gotten different experiences in field work in their, um, their undergraduate education. And it's very hard on me to just get out of my own head and my own space and like understand and to like, basically, be like, okay, hey, I'm I'm learning this. I'm, you know, I'm new to this field. I'm new to this area of study. I'm new to a lot of things, and I have to under. I have to like, get myself to understand that I can't compare myself to others. I'm, in like, especially with um being the only black females, really, it's even more hard to, like, not compare myself to uh, to anyone else. I look different. I like my education's different. I am very different in every aspect. But I'm trying, like, I'm working on, like, not letting that get to me, and I'm su- and surrounding myself by people who support me and in my interest and can nurture that.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that um, insight with us, because I know I definitely uh, identify with that same um, kind of uh, bridge between feeling and, uh, within the same community, but also not really seeing a whole lot of representation for myself. But... Before we get into more about that, I would love to hear, uh, Edgar, your perspective on the same uh, sort of
2: situation. Sure. Um, I think uh, similar to how Tia mentioned, um, I think it's important to see, you know, people who have similar experiences or similar backgrounds in your field. And I think archaeology and bioarchaeology in the United States, I mean, really don't quote me on this, but it's not incredibly diverse, right? Um, so I think in some cases I do feel a little bit, uh, different or a little bit, not singled out, like negatively, like somebody is singling me out, but like you just feel different. Um, I think overall though, I've had a pretty positive experience both in the field, in the lab, in the classroom, uh, because I, I do feel, I guess, demographically different, but not necessarily isolated. I've been very fortunate to have peers, that you know, I've become good friends and it kind of supported me either in the classroom or in collaboration and projects things like that um, and so I think the real so I'm making that distinction between feeling maybe different but not necessarily feeling isolated but I think it has everything to do with the people that I've uh, run into at work run into in classes or the professors that I've had I think making somebody feel welcome, especially knowing that they come from a disadvantaged demographic or an under, underrepresented demographic. I think that's work that they have to do. And I've been fortunate that my peers and the people that I've interacted with professionally have kind of put forth that effort.
0: So, in um, syndrome is uh, counseling and academia, but those who have an underrepresented academia can experience a, like, a compounding effect. Has uh, this been the case for you, um, or you can
2: stop it since uh, you the person in the screen right now? Oh, sorry, sorry. I, you cut off a little bit. I didn't hear the question.
0: Master uh, syndrome is a common yeah. phenomenon, yeah. but those who have an underrepresented
2: identity can experience a compounding
0: effect. Like this.
2: <laughs> Thanks, sure. Um, so I think um, that struggle is probably familiar, right, to a lot of different grad students. Um, and again, like your demographic background or your personal experiences might feed into that. Um, in my specific case, um, my family's not uh, like highly educated. My parents and grandparents uh, didn't didn't they didn't finish elementary school. Um, so I think there's times you know growing up where I didn't really have uh, the academic support that I wanted or that I may have needed. Um, but I've always kind of had the moral support of family. And again, I know not everybody necessarily has that. Right. Um, but I've had like that moral support, that support, uh, for my interests. Like I wanted to do archeology span since I was a little kid, you know, I don't know how I knew the word archeology, span but I knew that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, I always had family and friends and, and family friends too, who were, who were supporting that. Um, in my specific experience, no one ever told me like, Hey, you should be a doctor or you should be a lawyer because you're going to earn a lot. Like the money question was never, uh, was never something that was driving me. And it's because the adults around me were not, uh, you know, they weren't pushing that. And I think grad school is a little bit different because like, um, because, uh, well, I'm really like geographically very far away from that original support network, like family and friends. Um, So I think once it comes to like, Performing in grad school or achieving milestones that I'm supposed to be achieving, it's pretty easy to be very self critical, I think. Um, I think uh, I'm probably more harsh um, on my research and my data and my approach to things than like my advisor or anyone else. Um, So I think that imposter syndrome is kind of, at least in my experience, it's just kind of like myself. You know, I'm bringing myself down. It's not really about. It's whatever I'm doing is not that it's not good enough for the field. It's just that I have a high expectation of it. So at least in my experience, the demographics uh, they do play into it a little bit, but I think it's kind of like, um, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like a self reassurance that I have to counter it. with.
1: Thank you for sharing that uh, with us. Uh, Tia, do you want to also weigh in on that same question?
3: Yeah, so I'm a little similar to Edgar. I've had the family support, but I've also kind of had half of that as well. Um, a lot of my family, uh, like I said, before, they're in education. So I really didn't have anyone to help me like steer into science. So a good bit of it was done on my own. And I had like, went at my own pace because I just had really no true guidance up until I found um, one professor in my undergrad that helped me like shape my career path. And I honestly did not even really realize I had or was experiencing imposter syndrome until um, really just this year. I thought I was like, I, can't, I really didn't compare. I compare myself, but on the same, you know, like how we all do. Like, oh, that person's smarter than me. And that person's better than me. And these aspects, but not to the degree of like um, where I, I'm looking at my skin color now because I was fortunate where I really didn't have that issue growing up. But, and I, um, not to say I have it now, it's just, I see, it's more aware to me that, oh, hey, I like, I look completely different and there is not really anyone here that looks like me or even remotely like me. So having to deal with that has been, has has been just like a different kind of impact because I've just been able to kind of go about my life and just do my own thing. But, um, with my experiences with it, I've really, like, this is my first um, semester at school. I've been able to pursue my education with the guidance of my advisor, who's been very, like, allows me to actually come to her with these experiences I do have and, like, kind of guide me and, like, to get my, me out of my head and say, like, hey, you're learning, you're new, you're, you've got this. And I, have like, try to reach out to my family as well, and they were always like, hey, we, we've got this, we have your back and. And we're, we're, you know, they're trying to be understanding, but it's, it's still like a mental block. It's still, it's very hard to kind of just not compare yourself to other people because they have different backgrounds. So they were able to gain more experiences than you. And it's just, it's really kind of been like a test this semester. Cause I've just like, I work, I'm multitasking, all these things. And I'm trying to like, not stay in my head and just like, okay, I can do this. Like I, you know, I am just as good. I just have to go at my own pace and do my own thing. And I'll get there just like everybody else. Will.
1: Thank you also for sharing that with us. Uh, oh, I no. was uh, do
0: you guys do? I mean, you already said you are in a huge of field. I mean, you're in a lot, of life, but I'm wondering, do you have any plans to be in the field one day, just for your
3: um, I didn't hear the question. Can you repeat it, please?
0: I was just wondering, did you? Uh, you're Ginger, and Ellen, do you have any feelings that you want on in your career or just wondering my
3: curiosity? Sorry, I'm just having a hard time. Were you just asking if, um, uh, how I chose my career? Oh, I don't see. Let's try it. Oh, okay, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay.
1: Yeah, we're we have dual mics set up, so... We do apologize for any uh, inconsistencies in the audio, uh, but we will try to work through it. If we're still having some audio uh, issues, we'll, we'll try to change the setup a little bit. But um, for now, if you can still hear me quite clearly, uh, we were just kind of wondering with the field work component of your research, uh, do you have any plans to do that? What are your expectations and also, um, you know, what are your fears or concerns about that? Anything in general that you want to mention?
3: So um, I will actually be going out in the field in a few days. This is my first time going out in um, in the field with this project. I've previously gone out in the field in my undergraduate, but this will be my um, first experience with this whole different product. I'm looking at title migrations. so um, I do my field work in – like at the Sapelo Islands in Savannah or near Savannah. <laughs> um, but um, I'm like, I don't, I really don't, I don't know what to expect since this is like, I'm going with our lab tech and I'm not familiar with the area. I don't really know. I've met a maybe one or two people that have that work, that works there, but I'm not, you know, with COVID, <laughs> I've not physically met anybody. So I don't know roughly what to expect when I get there. I don't know like the setup. I don't really know, um, I don't even know how, like, the field work's going to go, because this will be my first time here. Um, my advisors just forewarned me not to wear anything valuable, as I will just get covered in mud. <laughs> but um, I'm pretty, like, I'm pretty open to my field experiences. Um, I like going out in the field. I don't think I've ever been, I've got, like, um, with my previous advisor back in my undergraduate, she was very, like, helpful with my field experience and getting me out there and it was that was my first time going I was at a I was like in Atlanta in like um in a like in a stream just out and I really I didn't really know what to expect at that time either and I had a blast doing it I enjoy doing field work it's one of the reasons why I did choose my advisor because I wanted that experience because I like since getting dirty literally and getting my own samples and creating something from that and be able to analyze all my own data from the ground up. But um, honestly, like I, you know, uh, my, uh, with my experiences, I've, I've, I'm in an environment that is very open to discussing discrimination, harassment, any of the sorts. And especially in the wake of like with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, my advisor has actually come to me and asked like, hey, are you okay? To make sure like I'm okay with what I'm doing, whether I'm, I'm okay in my environment because um they don't want me to since be isolated they don't want me to be discriminated against i i have an open environment where i can do that and i know with um my field work i don't really um because my like one of my lab mates is going with me i don't feel like i will have really any issues i don't feel like i'm really kind of since targeted my whole department's actually been very like proactive in doing stuff to um basically show their solidarity with the black lives matter movements lgbt and to the point where they actually developed a diversity equity inclusion committee in our in our whole department that has regular meetings to like actually invoke change and get these discussions talk up uh, to like be discussed
1: you also have a, a a leadership role in that right where you directly uh let's see Okay, uh, where you get to directly uh, try to implement change and, and maybe uh, promote discussion as well, right?
3: Yes, I'm actually um, one of the uh, student chairs in the lab climate subcommittee. I work um, with um, our, my faculty chair as my advisor, and we actually try to like implement ways in, in order to make sure both, not just the students, but the students, postdocs, um, the faculty, the staff, everybody, feels that like the lab environment is inclusive that everyone has a voice and that we can find ways to make sure that we're actually implementing change and not just writing it on piece of paper that we don't discriminate we don't want to be a cookie cutter type of like um environment that just says on paper that we do all these things we actually are actively trying to implement these ideas and 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 these changes in order to have a more inclusive environment we're collaborating with our like our student life committee our um our information committee and we're like collaborating that all like because there's multiple committees to it because there's a financial aspect to getting more diversity there's um a recruitment aspect to getting more diversity and we're working with them in order to okay not just have it like this area this um field of study be since whitewashed anymore we're Trying to get more Hispanics, more Native Americans, more African Americans. And I'm, I'm proud to say, like, I'm, you know, I'm active in this community and trying to implement this change. I can actually do it myself or um, not necessarily, you know, by myself, but I can get my hands dirty and get this stuff done. So people like me don't have to feel um, in like solidarity.
1: Yeah. Ed, did you have any comments uh, in that same regard, uh, or just around field work or?
2: Anything about that? Sure. Um, so I'm usually in the field about once a year, um, either doing lab work or, or field work. Um, and um, sorry, can you repeat the question? <laughs> yeah,
1: sorry. We kind of are coupling a few different questions at all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but we were just wanting to know if you had any moments in the field or with your fieldwork experience that may or may not have negatively impacted you or If you have good experiences we would love to hear that as well Uh, or just your general overview of how field work uh, represents
2: people in your field Sure, sure sure um so i've had a couple different kinds of like field work and lab work experiences um i did an internship when i was an undergrad uh, at the smithsonian um and i've done uh, field schools like uh, generally in archaeology you go to a field school and you learn how to excavate and do the field component right before you do the the lab component of the archaeological research. Um, And overall, the experiences I've had have been pretty good. Um, I think one of my favorite ones was the Smithsonian internship. Um, I was an undergrad, and um, it was an environmental research center. Um, But in my resume and in my writing, I expressed my interest in archaeology, saying, like, my career, you know, my path, I want to be archaeology. So they brought me into this ecology lab, but they allowed me to do an archeological project because there were archeological sites all over the place. This is uh, in the Chesapeake Bay. Um, So there were shell middens and like all these archeological sites and I was able to do a very small excavation and I developed my project around that. Um, So I think what made that experience um, like so positive was that I kind of started seeing myself as a researcher. Um, like I mentioned, I'd been interested in archeology span since I was a kid, uh, but I didn't really know what a career might look like in science or what a career might look like in research. And I think that internship was the first time that I thought like, well, oh, you know, this is how you develop a project from beginning to end. Even if, even though it was a pretty small project, it was a very small excavation. Um, but even then, like I, I, had a lot of, uh, guidance and I had a lot of like freedom at the same time to like make choices. and. And then you have to explain the choices, right? So I had this final presentation. Um, so overall, that was a pretty good experience. And I think it was because I had, um, it was like, somewhat of a balance. I had both the guidance and I had like my freedom to, to design the project. Um, and then more recently I was in, an, in another project in Mexico uh, with Dr. Uh, Christopher Moorhart. He's at Arizona state. Um, and this is like a pretty big, like regional project. They did. Uh, like surveys and, and these hills that are now used for grazing cattle and farming. Uh, they've done excavations for several years. Um, and uh, most of the people on the project though are grad students. So I think in that case, um, I've had maybe a little bit less guidance or a little bit less like direction from the PIs or the co-PIs. Um, but I think in, in that specific case, I, I enjoyed the experience because less guidance was appropriate because you're working with grad students and it's not like a first year undergrad, right? Um, So I think contrasting those two fieldwork experiences, what has made it positive for me is kind of like the instructors or the co-PIs or whoever is like your director in a way, uh, gauging the level of like engagement that is appropriate for the person, right? Um, There were times in this more recent project um, I was working with ceramics and ceramics are not my specialty. I I focus more on isotopes and like skeletal morphology and things like that, like the biology side, but I was working with ceramics and iconography and there were a lot of the times where I thought well I don't know if I'm you know assuming too much or I don't know if I'm even doing like the right statistics for this Um, and um, the people who were helping me or the people who were guiding this project were very like amenable when I said, you know, I need help on this specific thing, or like I'm not sure about this one thing. So again, like going back to, you know, contrasting those experiences, what made it positive was like the co-PIs or the PIs, like gauging the level of engagement that's necessary.
1: Yeah, I will say that the very tiny amount of work that I did with ceramics and it, it it seems to be a very difficult out of my realm of understanding, uh, it's just a very complicated. That's all I know. Um, but yeah, did you want to ask? Yeah. Question?
0: And I, you said earlier, I don't know, apparently we're having issues with me, but uh, you said earlier, or uh, yeah, you said earlier that you taught in public school. And I'm wondering if you could uh, talk about that experience a little for us.
2: Sure. Um, so I taught for two years in a public elementary school in Dallas, Texas. Um, it was, the neighborhood is called Pleasant Grove. Um, so it's on the south side of the city. It's a mostly African American and, uh, Mexican American or Latino uh, neighborhood. And I specifically taught bilingual education, meaning the kids were, um, they were on track to learn English. Uh, so, uh, 50% of their courses and materials were in Spanish and 50% were in English. And I taught, uh, social studies and science. Um, Overall, I really liked the experience because I like working with kids. They were always pretty excited to learn about science and history. Um, since it was fourth and fifth grade, it was U.S. history and Texas history. Um, so I think these kids were just like obsessed with like uh, like Plains native communities and they were obsessed with cowboys and everything to do with like cattle ranching and everything. Um, and I also really enjoyed the experience because Uh, The kids were from a similar demographic background as I was like I grew up in the United States uh, my whole life, but I grew up speaking Spanish only at home and like 99% of my students also spoke only Spanish at home. Some of them spoke a little bit of English at home, Um, but it was interesting to see kind of like, um, you know, to to start interacting with the kid and they're interested in science and have the opportunity to nurture that interest and like encourage them, you know, to develop uh, science experiments and things like that. Um, one of the more positive experiences I had was, um, the science fair. I got to like manage the science fair for the campus and, uh, a lot of the kids, um, well, most of the kids uh, did a science project and they were all experiments. None of the projects were like demonstrations. Um, and it was really impressive to see like the level of creativity that a fourth grader or a fifth grader, you know, would come in with like, Uh, One project that I really liked was a student um, dyed, like she used food dye to uh, color sesame seeds. And then she like dumped them them in the yard. Um, And then she went and counted the seeds like a day later to see which color the birds picked up. And I was just thinking like, that's amazing. I don't know. I I mean, I'm not an ecologist, but I wouldn't have thought of that. And the fact that she used sesame seeds for all of them and didn't like, you know, uh, randomly used seeds and I was just like really impressed by this project and I thought like well I hope you know that if the student chooses to go into research like these are like the really good ideas you know that you want to nurture um, and then even when students were like not too too interested or you know maybe they were struggling a little bit it was very humbling in a way when a student felt comfortable enough uh, to come ask for help or, or if a parent felt comfortable enough to come and ask for help either on a project or a homework assignment or something like that.
1: That's pretty awesome. I would also would have never thought to do that. So that's pretty cool that you got that experience um, with them. Uh, So Tia, I know that you want to be a field researcher. And so do you find aspects of teaching that you want to also implement uh, going later into your research or that you anticipate uh, the
3: teaching component of that. Um, I'm not really sure. Um, I'm still, you know, like I'm still starting out, so I'm kind of still fleshing out exactly what I want to do. I have uh, like since a general idea, but I haven't since um, narrowed it down <laughs> and since. But um, I've like I've thought it, about teaching because I know at some point I'll have to TA, and I'm not sure. I've never had that experience of teaching. I'm open to like guiding more so than anything even when I'm um, going over subjects I kind of guide people because I'm terrible about teaching but um, I am looking forward to that experience when I do TA and seeing like hey is this a field for me or like you know is my bit more in academia and doing field re- r- research that way or am I just uh, you know never going to be a teacher in my life. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I know that we both have teaching experience now. Uh, me less so than, than Jordan probably. But um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a humbling, humbling experience uh, for me especially. Um, and I think just going back to the imposter syndrome uh, aspect is, is just, you know, making sure that you're thorough and how you teach and finding different ways to teach can be pretty... Um, pretty difficult, I think, um, but yeah, I think I think it's great, and uh, I really appreciate both of your uh, answers, and um, I think you're gonna be great, you. I know that, I know you, so, <laughs> but uh, just moving on to our next question.
0: Yeah, uh, do you feel as though your identity impacted your research interests?
3: For me, I'm like, I'm not sure. I really chose my field um, because it fit for me. I, um, I started off with, uh, like, working with an ecologist in my undergrad. And because of her, I met, like, a thousand ecologists <laughs> and at a conference oh, almost two years ago now, and or a little over two years ago now. And I was able to find a field of study because I knew I wanted to pursue higher education, but I didn't know what for like most of my childhood I was like I'm going to be a vet and my mom was just like okay (laughs) and she never really she like half believed me half did not and so when it came down to it she's just like oh no (laughs) I don't know what to do and I luckily had changed my interest but I still wanted to be a doctorate in something and um, after I went to that conference I found my interest in biogeochemistry and that led me to my advisor, because she uses biogeochemistry to look into her salt marsh restoration um, projects. And I've just, um and like, I, cause I met her and we've clicked so well, I'm like, I'm really happy at, in my project choice, but I don't know what, like, what other than it being me, I don't know if my, like, since my whole, like, it's me being T has been my identity. It was never me being a black female, it was never me being female. It was never being just, you know, it's just me being a person and me being me with my, um, my childhood experiences. I often was since uh, basically treated differently. And Jenna might have some experience with this as well as like being women of color. We're often as, especially with speaking, how we do, we're seen as acting white and often, and often not like anytime someone said that to me, I'm like, I'm not acting white. I am acting me. And I'm like, since if anything that's my identity and that's what I chose to pursue I don't want to be labeled as anything other than me I want my interests to feel like for feel for me and I change my mind as as I see fit because it's like this isn't me this is not what I want to do I even um um even when I like I graduated and I went into since my adult job (laughs) I um I got offered to I got offered a job at a time where I really needed a job and I turned it down despite the fact that I needed a job because it was not me. It was in Atlanta. It was doing things. I was remotely interested in. and they made good money, but I knew I wouldn't be happy. It wasn't me. It didn't fit my myself. It didn't fit my goals. And I knew it really, it, it might have led me to what I'm doing now. It might not have. And I was so afraid of it really kind of like since cutting me short and cutting me off. I didn't want that. And so I chose to wait and I went into an environment that is now allowing me to go to school and pursue my interest. And I've been like, I've been the most happy despite all the, you know, the blood, sweat, tears going into all this work. <laughs> as we all know, it's very difficult, but I'm, I'm happy with my field. I'm happy I chose and I'm happy I follow a path for just me. And um that I've been encouraged by um, not since like, not just my family, but as my, my friends, my peers, have Encourage me to pursue my interests and what fits for me and what I want to do.
1: So glad you said that, too, uh, Tia, because it is something that I also all the time. I'm constantly thinking about, you know, this whole idea of identity being like such a constant pressure. And I definitely in my youth, um, throughout elementary, you know, and beyond. And I've always had this stigma that, you know, if I talked a certain way, you know, okay, now I don't fit in with this group, but if I talk this way, you know, just, you know, it's, it's really difficult to like say, okay, I'm not just doing this to fit into some category. I'm just being myself and whether or not, you know, someone else accepts that I know that I'm, you know, in walking in my own truth and following my own passions. Um, so I'm just really inspired by hearing you say that because it, it did spark something in me uh, that reminded me of the same thing. So thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, with that. What about you, Ed?
2: Um, so I think a little bit of, I think my answer to the question is a little bit yes, a little bit no, in a way. Um, so growing up, I was interested in archaeology. I was also really into paleontology for a couple years, I guess. Um, and I guess just archaeology one, you know, um, but uh, I think my part of the reason I was into archaeology and paleontology was just kind of like I was just interested in the past and it kind of didn't have anything to do with me. Um, I think over the years, though, as I pursued the interest in archaeology, it has a little more to do with my experiences, a little more to do with like my identity, uh, because I study uh, human populations from Mexico from about 500 years ago. And uh, one of, like, the, one of like, the aspects of my research is looking at biological descent and cultural identity in Mexico. Um, so I specifically look at variations in the crowns of teeth. Um, and that has to do with like, biological descent. Um, um, and in Mexico and in Latin America, most people like by population are mestizo, meaning they have mixed uh, European and indigenous ancestry. And that's how my family and I identify um so understanding kind of like the biological origins of that population um which is like a major part of my dissertation now um it kind of like indirectly informs you know how i view myself or how i view like you know the origins of the ethnic group that i that i identify with um so again it's like a little a little bit of my answer is yes and no like the reason necessarily wasn't because of you know the the combination of identities that I have, but but the, the way I've developed my research interests and the way I've developed my, my research angle um, has a lot to do with the experiences that I had and also the experiences that, like, my parents and grandparents have told me about. I think my grandparents uh, were farmers and my dad grew up farming. Um, I've never, you know, had a farm life, but, like, everything they told me about farming was just, like, fascinating to me. It seemed like, at the same time, it was... Super different, you know, your your daily routines, your daily activities, um, but at the same time, it was very similar because I grew up in a in an immigrant household, and like the foods and the things that we did at home are probably pretty similar to what people did a hundred years ago or even longer. Um, so I think just contrasting, you know, what I experienced and what people may have lived in the past, uh, kind of indirectly, um, you know, nurtured that that research interest that I had.
1: Awesome. Um, And what a cool like backstory uh, to know that your grandparents had a farm. (laughs) Like that's one of my life goals is to have a farm someday. So um, that's, that's really amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, And I think for our last question, we will just want to hear both of your perspectives Uh, for someone in your, in your position or for you, uh, thinking about like when you were little and saying, I know what I want to do, how do I pursue this goal? What advice would you give someone in that same position uh, as you um, who is maybe looking to pursue the same research? Not necessarily your research, but research in general. So if Ed, if you want to start.
2: Okay. Um, so sorry, maybe this is maybe too many stories. I'll keep it short. Um, so when I first started like using the internet in middle school, I emailed this uh, professor at the university of Florida and he, I think he was about to retire by then because he did his master's uh, thesis in the town where my dad was from. So he went and like dug up like these 3000 year old houses, they're waddle and daub, nothing, you know, spectacular, but he did his research and I found it on the internet. Um, so I asked him tons of questions about archaeology and he was very responsive. I know I was like 12 and I said, I want to be an archaeologist. You did your research in my dad's town. It's a tiny town of like 300 people. Um, and I kept on asking him questions about archaeology and teaching and universities and things like that. So I think my my recommendation, you know, for someone who's like starting to develop an interest is to not be afraid to ask questions. And I feel like Sometimes you might be a little annoying. I think I was probably a little annoying, but this professor always took the time to send me detailed emails, right? And I think, had he not done that, I probably would still be doing archaeology, but it wouldn't have been as positive of an experience as I've had. So I think my piece of advice would be to not be afraid to ask questions. Like, I mean, be polite, definitely, right? Like, that maybe goes without saying, but like, maybe err on the side of asking more questions, definitely.
3: And Tia, do you have any advice? Uh, Agreed with Edgar. Definitely ask questions. (laughs) I'm 25 and I'm learning to do that every day as I'm learning new things. Um, But um, also I would probably tell my younger self is uh, stay true to you and go at your own pace. I have like, you know, the imposter syndrome is probably affected me longer than I I thought. But um, I think if I could go back in time and just tell myself to like, go at your own pace and do what works for you, that would really, severely help me. Um, as I like, just always thought uh, like, oh, I'm supposed to be doing this at this time and doing this at this time. And even my mom would tell me, do this at this time, but I just like, I wasn't ready and I, pr- I pushed myself and you know, I, like it caused some setbacks, but you know, some were good, some were bad, but um, honestly going at your own pace at whatever works for you, no matter how old or what time or anything, it's just like a, a big thing. I feel like people should understand everyone's different. No matter, you know, I once met an 80 year old woman who got her doctorate and I was like probably 10, 12 or so when my mom was graduating with her master's. And I was just like, that's, that's, it's insane. You know, this 80 year old woman's getting her, her doctorate. My mom, who was a single, you know, black woman, she's over here getting her master's. Like I can do this at any point in time, you know, but I really did. I didn't see that impact until I got older and I really understood, like, this is, you know, there's no time frame on this stuff. Everybody can do things at a different time because of a number of reasons and I shouldn't put myself on a limit or a time limit because of other, everyone else around me because that's what's the normal.
0: Uh, Thanks, We're going to get into the, well, just going to do some closer remarks in a second and then we're going to get into the Q&A where you guys can ask everyone who's been speaking questions. and offer some advice to my younger self, I would probably say that um, you just gotta be able, you gotta be flexible sometimes and want to think about things differently. Because if I hadn't started thinking that I could be a scientist, I would never become a scientist. I just didn't think that was possible for me. So that would be to myself. And then a lot of younger people is that uh, you can be a scientist. It's, it's going to be rough sometimes, but it's definitely possible. so that would be my
1: advice. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's a great uh, way to close out our interview. Uh, and I just want to go ahead, before I start the closing remarks, to thank the both of you uh, for sharing those really uh, inspiring stories, because I really would have never known any of those things about either of you. Maybe Tia, because I met Tia. Mm-hmm. But um, I really appreciate you sharing that experience with us. And uh, Jordan, your advice kind of bleeds directly into why we started this podcast, uh, Be Scientists, because we don't want anyone, especially uh, those minority voices that aren't often heard uh, in public platforms, to ever feel that they can't pursue their goals and their dreams. Um, And so we want to inspire people to be scientists, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's kind of the point of our podcast. um, And I hope that kind of got through with our interview. Uh, both of you are wonderful. What a great conversation uh, with both of you. And um, We just want to thank the GBF Symposium organizers, uh, all of the other uh, sessions that were held. What a great way to promote discussion uh, about these things. And so with that being said, I just want to thank the audience for being so patient and listening and. Letting us work through our audio issues. Yes. Uh, but we would like to open up the floor for questions. You can type them in if you don't feel comfortable uh, unmuting yourself. And I know that there's a few of us, so um, it might be an easier way to facilitate questions. Um, but if you are confident and you want to say something now, I think we do have something in the chat though. Oh, well, thank you. We appreciate that. <laughs> uh, so if you did have any questions, it would probably be probably easier to type them into the chat. Um, and so you will take any, um, any questions for us in particular or for Edgar and Tia. Uh, if they feel comfortable answering these questions, uh, totally feel free. I do have a couple other questions I would love to ask both of them. And so if we don't have any, we can move on to that. Okay, so our first question from Mark Callahan says, what do you wish institutions knew about emerging scientists? So I can try to start the conversation about that, but I would say that uh, everyone is facing their own um, issues and things to work through and that we're all human. And so um, I think oftentimes, especially in the STEM field, there is this kind of culture of competition. And so that can be pretty uh, difficult to cope with when you're trying to be unique and original um, going into this field. And so that's something I would think uh, is important for institutions to keep in mind. uh, Because I know, especially with higher academia, the more higher you go, the more they expect you to kind of uh, add different components to your, your resume or how you function as an academic. Uh, And so that can get pretty difficult to deal with uh, on a day-to-day basis. So if Tia or Ed wanted to add to that.
3: I can add a little bit. Um, I think what they really should understand about emergency scientists is that uh, there's, I feel like there's no traditional way about how we go about things anymore. I feel like a lot of institutions are still kind of cookie cutter with, with everything, even in 2020. And especially with everything that's going on in the year 2020, I feel like they should um, like start adapting to the, like the new way we do things. You know, Not all of us are able to go to a thousand conferences, get all these in, in, internships and do all these things. And um, I just like everybody is a little different, especially going to grad school. I'm, you know, I feel like I've, I've met so many people who've gone about things differently, more so than others. And we're still all great scientists. And I think they should just be understanding of that. that I know you can't take in everybody, but like curbing what you're looking for, I feel like would open the field to more diversity, of course, and like and, and make it more welcoming.
2: I do have one comment on that same question. Um, I think in my experience, when I've had difficulties in grad school, it's usually a difficulty with scheduling. Um, so it's like, for example, having a class that's five times a week. And I'm sure like, we, I'm not, this isn't a complaint. Like I know we all have to, you have to go to class, you have to go to meetings, you have to be on time. Like that's, that's not the complaint. Um, but I think sometimes being somewhat more understanding and for example, and this is like an overused expression possibly, but things that could have been an email, right? Like if somebody lives an hour away and they have to drive to campus to do something, you're already limiting the work day, right? Um, so, and I'm, I don't know, I structure my day. Like I have set apart hours where I'm supposed to be doing one thing, doing another thing. And if I have to go to a campus for a 15 you know, minute meeting, that's already cutting away my work time. Or or my personal time, which I feel like should be personal, like perfectly fine to say, like you know, that's my personal time. Um, so I think just being considerate of time and being considerate of scheduling is something that like most of us can probably keep in mind. But I think when somebody has the upper hand, like an advisor or a university office, like that's very important, I think. And because you don't necessarily know, like you know, what's going on in the other person's uh, life or or their schedule, like you could be. You know, a TA, you could be an RA, you could live an hour away, something like that. those are really good
0: answers. Um, just looking through the chat, I'm trying to get through all the questions as best as we can. Uh, it's a question about frequency for the Peace Sciences Podcast. Uh, we have been recording episodes and releasing them on a weekly basis prior to this symposium after the symposium, we'll be switching to a five-weekly schedule instead. Um our next episode will come after the general election because we have another, our session, we actually scheduled after that. Episode. So and after we do that interview, we'll release that episode and then will be on a two-week schedule, basically.
1: Oops, excuse me. Um, and so we have one other question uh, from David Hetch, and I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. Um, oh, that's the same question, mm-hmm. just kidding. Mm-hmm. From Rachel Arnie, uh, who also did a session for the GBF Symposium asked, what vision do you see for the podcast as it, pro- as it progresses? That's a great question. Yeah, it's that's a great question. <laughs> um, really want to, I know for, at least from my perspective, I want to be able to uh, have more perspectives from different scientists in our field Uh, who also uh, look like us, so that we can all kind of get an understanding of how are we navigating through this time? There's so many things happening culturally that we have to uh, think about, sit with, and go about our day, right? And perform as normal humans. Um, And so I think it would be good to uh, keep engaging with those in our community to um, just have a safe space to discuss whatever we want, and also framing it around, you know, research and science and the things that we love uh, in our career. Yeah,
0: I'll add like to that and say I also hope that it, it's pretty accessible and I hope that people who are interested in science being who don't always think and be scientists listen to and say, oh, okay. Uh, see how the person progresses and it's like a story ahead and so then they grew up and then they also feel encouraged to become scientists so that's that's just my addition to that another question from from megan hey megan what do you think the role of mentorship has been in developing your research trajectory what makes a good system in your opinion do you want to open it up to Ed
1: and Tia if you ever? Yeah, we can open it up to Ed and Tia um, because I'm so new that I, I, it's kind of hard for me to frame that uh, for, for research.
3: Um, so. Same here, I'm new as well. <laughs> you and I are on the same track with me. So Edgar, you totally have that. <laughs>
2: Sure. Uh, um, So I think um, the experiences like when I've had a positive experience with mentorship, either in the field or like with an advisor or even like a work environment, like, you know, like teaching elementary, like a paid work environment. um, Like, I think, again, like it's like the balance of being available when you need guidance on certain like specific things but also kind of not being overbearing. So when I've had a positive experience, it's because there's been that balance. Like, it's like if, so, if I'm learning, for example, a lab procedure, I have someone to text and say, hey, did I completely mess this up? Or like, how do I not completely mess this up, right? Um, and it would be very different if whomever I'm emailing or texting is not responsive to that. Uh, so I've had positive experiences in that regard, and I think it's a balance of being available, when you do need guidance, but also not being like you know overbearing or something like that.
1: And so, uh, leading up to our next question, we have a two-part uh, from Ashantra Sharma, I, and also I hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, and also another session. Uh, so she has two questions. One for Edgar that we can start. What was it? Uh, like navigating academia with English as your second language and if it if this is how you feel or how did you try to prepare your students for that? Um, and I butchered that question. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> um, so, so the first part of the question, um, since I grew up in the US, I learned I like spoke English and did like undergrad in English. Um, So it wasn't too bad, you know, in grad school, but I do kind of want to answer the opposite question because I work in Mexico. So my lab work is in Mexico. The collections that I work are in Mexico. I've had to develop academic Spanish. Um, And I mentioned that I grew up speaking Spanish, but academic Spanish is a little bit different. Um, So I, I imagine, and this is a little bit of an assumption that the way I've had to adapt to academic Spanish in Mexico and like you know, the mistakes that I make or the insecurity I might have sometimes in Mexico is potentially something that uh, students might experience here in the US. You know, if they're coming from another country or if they're learning English, like, uh, I don't know, as teenagers or maybe a little bit older than when I was. Um, and I think w- one strategy that helps me, um, that helps me now in Mexico and helped me growing up, um, and I also try to teach this to my elementary school kids, is kind of to give yourself credit for the progress that you are making, because I think it's really easy to focus on the things that you mess up. For example, like um, one of the key terms in my research, I translated from English to Spanish and every single email that I sent for two years, that term was mistranslated. Um, So if I think about that now, it's like, well, that's really embarrassing. And like whoever read those emails could think like this guy, you know, doesn't know what he's talking about. But I, I don't know. I feel like I do know what I'm talking about. I just mistranslated something. It, it, it's pretty egregious because it was two years. But like, you know, I, I can still give myself credit for the things that I've done right. And, and, and if language is one of the things that might be a little bit difficult, um, I think focusing on the things that are going well is, I don't know, a good coping mechanism or something like that.
1: Yeah, I couldn't even imagine uh, having to bridge that kind of gap with language. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and so the second part of that question uh, from Ashantia is for Tia, uh, do you think it was, is uh, more or less challenging to find opportunities for field work and other opportunities to your identities and uh, lived experiences? Um for me, it was...
3: It was definitely, like, in the past, after I graduated, it was a little, is quite difficult to find opportunities. I cannot tell you how many jobs I applied for to um, basically to get something in my field because I had literally just, like, lost a job, got a new job, but it was definitely not paying well, and I'm like, I need something right now. <laughs> I just graduated, you know? They're like, this job market's so great every time, but it never is, but um, I was fortunate in that only reason I even got offered the job I did was because I knew somebody and that was pretty much I feel like the main reason why I was offered the job because a lot of the jobs I was applying for a lot of them were like oh hey we want you to have eight years of experience but a bachelor's degree like no one has that you know and then now I don't know um because where because where I work now I worked there like since that um since that first experience of applying to jobs but I've talked to some of my co-workers who um, who've come and gone and them trying to find jobs are like I only found this job because like I worked here for a good couple of years and qualified for my experience and I'm hoping <laughs> once I graduate I won't have that problem as much anymore because I am fortunate enough where I'll be learning not only just like stuff to do in the field but also how to operate the equipment like the GCS um, the gas chromatography mass effect, and I'm learning soil chemistry so I'm hoping with uh, what I'm learning and the experiences I'll gain, I will not run into that issue, but you know, crossing my fingers.
1: Well, thank you for those answers uh, from both of you. And I apologize Akanksha for mispronouncing your name, uh, but I really appreciate your questions. Um, And I think if we don't have any other remaining questions from the audience, we might go ahead and um, end our session here so thank you again for joining us today and remember to always be scientists
0: <laughs> be scientists is a podcast by the black science coalition institute or b-side host and producers are jenna carpenter and jordan chapman special thanks to michael mycaster marshall and the Plaza Abbey studios intro and outro beat produced by Delarillo and lyrics are by ed gunner if you would like to donate to Bside, visit us on bside.org or donate to our PayPal at paypal.me backslash to B-Sci. Thanks for listening to B-Scientist.